0: From Washington, this is Martin Weinstein for the Wilkie Compliance Concourse podcast series. For returning listeners, welcome back. For new listeners, welcome. We have a very special program for you today. We have with us Peter Burrell, who's gonna explain the interaction of European Union, United Kingdom, and U.S. sanctions. Peter comes to us from London. Coming back to us, we have David Mortlock and Britt Mossman from Washington. Reminding our listeners, David Mortlock is the chair of Wilkie's Global Trade and Investment Practice Group and heads the firm's Washington, D.C. office. During the Obama administration, he served as director for International Economic Affairs on the White House National Security Council and advised on issues regarding Russia, Venezuela, Iran, Cuba, Syria, and Burma. Britt Mossman is a partner and vice chair of the Global Trade and Investment Practice Group in Washington, D.C., She's a former advisor for the Department of Treasury and was the lead attorney on the Ukraine, Russia, Iran, Cuba, Syria, election interference, and cyber-related sanctions programs. As I mentioned, our main guest today is Peter Burrell. Peter heads Wilkie's litigation, compliance investigations and enforcement, and white-collar defense practice groups in Wilkie's London office. He's recognized as one of the UK's leading specialists in corporate crime and compliance matters. And he regularly advises on compliance issues relating to sanctions, money laundering, bribery and corruption, sanctions and fraud. But perhaps most important for people to know about Peter is he's an avid cyclist. And in fact, Peter will cycle some of the portions of the Tour de France, I think, after or maybe before some of the professional cyclists. And he has from time to time been known to manufacture or brew his own special sparkling wine known as the Fram Fizz. So welcome, Peter from London and David and Britt from Washington. It's so great to have you all here. Um, Peter, let's start with you. Can you give us sort of an overview, a 50,000-foot level on what the UK sanctions encompass?
1: Yes. Well, thank you, Martin, for that lovely introduction. Much like US sanctions, we have financial and then separately trade sanctions. In the UK, financial sanctions are enforced by the Office for Financial Sanctions Implementation, or OFFSEA, as we call it. And that's part of the UK Treasury. And then trade sanctions are separately dealt with by the Export Control Joint Unit, which is part of the Department for International Trade. And those two bodies work closely together as far as our sanctions regime is concerned. And in addition to those uh, two bodies, we have the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, which also has a role in administering sanctions. In particular in determining who gets designated which of course uh, following the invasion of ukraine they've been very busy issuing large numbers of designations of course if the breach of uk sanctions is a criminal breach then other uh, enforcement bodies will get involved including the uk's serious fraud office as with us sanctions uh, uk sanctions are extraterritorial and they apply to the conduct of uk nationals or companies wherever they are in the world as well as to conduct within the UK. And this raises uh, issues for our non-UK clients who are working with UK partners, joint venture partners, suppliers, customers, and those sorts of issues where they will have to have regard not just to their own domestic sanctions regime, but also to the UK sanctions regime. Of course, uh, we once had territories overseas, so therefore UK sanctions also extend to many of the Crown dependencies, which in the context of Russian assets held offshore, such as in investment funds, has given rise to to further complications in the analysis of which sanctions regime uh, to apply. Of course, the UK is no longer a member state of the EU, and so the UK sanctions regime is now distinct from that of the EU. That means that we have a different list of designated persons, those, of course, who are subject to the strictest form of asset freeze. We also have a different licensing regime, both for general licenses and specific licenses for specific transactions. And so there are real differences now between uh, the UK and the EU
0: regime, uh, which our clients have to have regard to. Peter, going a little bit further on the post-Brexit sanctions regimes in the European Union and the UK. Is there some level of coordination between the EU and the UK, or are they really functioning totally separate at this point?
1: Well, in this regard, I'm pleased to say that there's been an unprecedented uh, degree of coordination, and and not just between the EU and the UK, uh, but also with the US and other allies, such as Canada and Australia. And we certainly expect to see that continue. So the broad categories of sanctions coming into force are very similar, targeting strategic Russian industries and those that support the Russian state and economy, as well as placing restrictions on key exports from the EU and UK to Russia. The foreign sector in the UK has been keen to stress the level of coordination between the UK and EU on the sanctions as each new package is announced. But as always with sanctions, the devil is in the detail and there are differences. So often we find that it's only when you start to consider a specific problem or issue raised by a client, that you will then understand how the EU and UK regimes apply differently to the particular issue in question. So we'll come on to some examples of that a little bit later, but the important point here is that it is not safe to assume that just because something is permitted under EU sanctions, that it will be permitted under UK sanctions, or vice versa, that just because something uh, is prohibited in one place, that it will be prohibited in the other. One of the things that the UK government did at the start of the crisis was to amend the law to allow it to designate people who had been designated by the U.S., E.U., Canada or Australia, even if the U.K. government at that point in time did not have all the information necessary to designate them directly under its own regime. So this was one of the sort of key areas of coordination that we saw, uh, which was implemented as a result of the invasion of Ukraine.
0: Peter, the U.S. and the United Kingdom have always been considered extremely close allies. Can you share with us how the U.K. sanctions approach relating to Russia has compared to the U.S. approach? Are they mirror images? Are they different? How do they differ? And what should our clients and our listening audience know about those differences?
1: Well, Martin, as I've said, I mean, there has been a fantastic level of coordination with not just the U.K. and the EU, but also with the U.S. as far as sanctions are concerned. And therefore, we see quite a lot of similarities in terms of the regimes. But as I also mentioned earlier, the devil is in the detail. So, for example, you know, if you have a look at the number of individuals and entities that are subject to an asset freeze, the UK has designated over 1,600 individuals and entities following the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But the two countries list, the US and the UK, are different. Roman Abramovich is a good example of that. He's sanctioned in the UK, but not sanctioned in the US. There are also other similarities. You know, There have been sanctions targeting Russian banks. The ability of strategically important Russian companies to access uh, finance, including through loans and issuing new securities, as well as restrictions directly targeted at those areas of Ukraine now under Russian control. That is coupled with trade controls on an ever-expanding list of goods. And a lot of those measures are in line in broad terms with what has been happening in the US. But of course, there are differences, and some of those differences are significant. So For example, different designations have led to differing approaches to things like restructuring of shareholdings. In some cases, restrictions in one country have come into force before they have done so in another. And that has provided jurisdictional issues in terms of shareholders taking defensive action in one jurisdiction in anticipation of, in this case, perhaps the US following suit behind the implementation of sanctions in the UK. Another major challenge relates to the differences uh, in how sanctions apply to companies and, in particular, to those who own or control them. So, for example, in the US, persons whose property and interests of property are blocked are considered to have an interest in all property and interests in a property of an entity which they own a 50% or greater interest in, whether directly or indirectly. What that means, in simple terms, is that any company that is owned 50% or more by one or more blocked persons is blocked as a matter of law, regardless of whether OFAC actually names it on the SDN list. By contrast to that in the EU, EU, sanctions automatically extend to any entity owned, and now importantly, or controlled by a sanctioned person. So it's not just an ownership issue, it's a control issue. And similarly, the position in the UK, the UK asset freeze also applies, not just on ownership, but also on control by a designated person. And just to confuse matters or make it more complicated, the test for control under the UK sanctions regime is different to the test for control under the EU sanctions regime. Regimes also differ in terms of how they treat the aggregation of interests, where you might have one or more SDNs holding a portion of shares in a company. In the US and EU, you simply add together the interests of the sanctioned persons in order to determine ownership or control. 25 plus 26 equals 51, over 50%, therefore owned by designated persons. But the UK regime does not aggregate ownership in the same way. Although it's always important to bear in mind that, of course, even if there is not ownership by more than 50%, there may nevertheless be control by an SDN of an entity, which again means that effectively it should be treated as if itself is designated. So some real issues there around ownership, control, uh, and aggregation. There are also different restrictions on different banks, uh, which have changed, of course, the ways in which clients are able to get money into and out of Russia, especially where clients have subsidiaries or existing payment obligations to suppliers in Russia. Uh, And there are also different approaches to the holdings in securities where companies are designated as subject to the asset freeze. So, for example, from a UK and EU perspective, The company's securities can still be traded so long as there is no benefit to the sanctioned company. So, Martin, you own the security and I buy the security from you. That's going to be okay if the company doesn't get any benefit from it, provided, very important proviso, that we are not directly prohibited from trading in that security by a specific part of our sanctions regime. US, by contrast, the, the security should be frozen. and if a US person controls them, then they need to report to OFAC. So, again, differences there in terms
0: of trading uh, in securities. That's a great deal to unpack. And let's take that even further now. Let's bring in uh, David and Britt. Like Peter in London, David and Britt, you've been the epicenter of advice on these topics in Washington. D- David, what have you found to be the major differences in the way, and I'll lump them together, the US, UK, EU sanctions are operating as a group, right? Versus other sanctions regimes. You're trying to, to 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 synergize all of this together. What have you found to be the differences and the challenges, David?
2: Well, I completely agree with Peter on uh, uh, some of the differences between the regimes for Russia uh, and the different conclusions we reach, even when we're dealing with the same sanctioned Russian entities under the different programs. Uh, I think the. Uh, um, the, the the biggest difference between this Russia regime and uh, the other sanctions regimes, or even Russia prior to uh, prior to this February, uh, is uh, that we speak to Peter and his team and to our EU colleagues uh, a lot more often, uh, and that's good news and bad news because obviously it's uh, uh, it's a it's a delight to compare notes with them, um, but it does make the issues more complicated for clients because. Historically, it tended to be that the U.S. was the lowest common denominator with the most restrictive sanctions. And so for clients uh, looking at at trade controls, uh, it was generally the case that if you were compliant with U.S. sanctions, um, you were probably uh, safe on the U.K. and and EU front. Um, But it is uh, much more the case with the new Russia regime, Uh, then oftentimes uh, it is more restrictive under the UK sanctions or more restrictive under the EU EU regime, uh, depending on the particular Russian entities involved. And so what that means is just that when we're assessing uh, a a transaction or or activities in Russia, uh, it it means that uh, collectively as a team with with the US, UK and EU uh, components of Wilkie, Uh, we're assessing the the transaction uh, altogether.
0: So, David, what I hear you saying basically is that if we were looking at at Cuba – or, or Iran, that almost always, if you followed the U.S. law, you were you were going to be in good shape regarding what other countries did. Now with Russia, it's different because there might be other countries that have, that have front-run the U.S., and that level of coordination is all the more important because the, the lowest common denominator may not be the U.S., and if it's the U.S. today, it may not be the U.S. tomorrow or next week.
2: I think one other interesting wrinkle to keep in mind is the EU blocking statute as well, which lingers in the background. And while it applies currently to Iran and Cuba sanctions, generally prohibiting EU persons from complying and enforcing contractual rights in EU courts based on Iran and Cuba sanctions, it does not apply to the US-Russia sanctions. And as a result, it certainly looks as though the EU and the UK are perfectly comfortable with uh, their citizens uh, complying not only with the EU sanctions, but also the US sanctions. Uh, And that that remains the case, uh, for the time being, at
0: least. You're really on the front line of all of this. I know you and I have talked about this a great deal and and you're really answering uh, along with David some of the toughest client challenges. What are the challenges you're seeing clients facing across all these different regimes, whether it's Russia, as we've just talked about, or other regimes? What are the challenges you're seeing today the clients are facing with?
3: The most significant challenge may simply be keeping track of everything. Yes, Western countries have been broadly aligned in their use of sanctions and export controls to respond to Putin's war, but the actions are all different in the details, as we've been saying, both in terms of which individuals and entities are targeted and what prohibitions apply to them. Since February 21st of this year, in the US alone, we have seen at least four new executive orders, five directives, four determinations, 39 general licenses, and around 50 FAQs related to Russia and Ukraine. That's not counting any of the times these actions have been amended and reissued. In the EU and UK, there have been multiple sanctions and export controls packages targeting Russia, including amended legislation in the UK to impose a strict liability standard for breaches of sanctions and to streamline the process for issuing sanctions, as Peter described. All of these actions have their own effective dates, wind-down periods, definitions, exemptions, and general authorizations that have to be understood before you can analyze a given transaction or activity that falls within the jurisdiction of any of these restrictions. So simply internalizing and operationalizing all of the restrictions is an increasingly complex compliance challenge. It's partly why, as we discussed in our last podcast, some companies have decided to de-risk beyond what is legally required, or to just apply the most restrictive sanctions and export controls measures globally. Second, Peter described the differences among jurisdictions in how sanctions apply to entities that are owned or controlled by sanctions target, and this is the source of another major challenge. These differing standards create challenges for diligence and compliance efforts, given how difficult it can be, even under the best of circumstances, for third parties outside of a company to have access to the corporate governance documents of their customers or counterparties that would allow them to ascertain ownership interests let alone aggregated ownership interests. Legal and compliance professionals have to determine whether to just take the most conservative approach to these types of questions, especially in the deal context where parties are often required to rep that they are not owned or controlled by a sanctioned person. A final challenge worth flagging is the various enforcement authorities that have to be taken into account. We spoke a little last time about how well-developed and active the enforcement division at OFAC is especially compared with European authorities. But the EU has recently set up a freeze and seize task force to implement sanctions and seize the assets of listed oligarchs. And ofsi in the UK appears to be getting tougher, which I'm sure Peter can address.
0: Let me ask this question. Peter, um, we've heard the term ofsi use this new agency. I'm not really sure I understand what it stands for, or what it does. So maybe you can help us on that. It seems that it's come into action, operation over the last few months. Are they the Are they the new UK OFAC? How do they work? And uh, can you help us figure out what they do? Yeah,
1: sure, Martin. So Look, as I said at the outset, you know, obviously is a bit of a mouthful in terms of its full, uh, full name. So the Office for Financial Sanctions Implementation, which is part of the UK Treasury and imposes uh, sanctions. It, it uh, came into effect in 2016, uh, taking over effectively from HM Treasury. So it's, it's just another department within that same overall body. Um, look, in some respects, it's it's you know the, the new OFAC in the sense that it's leading the charge in terms of sanctions implementation uh, in the UK. Uh, and obviously, it's got much more uh, freedom uh, now that we are separate from the EU in terms of the UK government's ability to implement its own sanctions regime, to deal with its own priorities in terms of national security and foreign policy, etc. But on the other hand, it's, it's no OFAC in terms of the size of the penalties. Um, so our largest penalty so far was £20 million uh, a couple of years ago, um, but its last enforcement action was in June 2021 against a fintech company with penalties of just under $100,000. So it's a little too early to say whether OFC will become the new OFAC in its approach to enforcement of the Russian sanctions, and in particular, just that level of financial penalty. I mean, typically, whether we're looking at sanctions, money laundering or bribery corruption, UK fines tend to be lower than those in the US uh, anywhere. And of course, our bribery regime has been around uh, for a much uh, longer period of time. Um, What is interesting, though, of course, is is other changes to the regime. So there's another act, the Economic Crime Transparency and Enforcement Act, which contains provisions that will give OFSI the power to impose uh, civil penalties effectively on a strict liability basis for breach of sanctions. And this sort of takes me back to to the earlier days of my career in the early noughties when uh, sanctions regimes were strict liability. And then some bright lawyers came up and said, hang on, is that Human Rights Act compliant? And the regime was changed in order to basically build in a due diligence defence such that if you had no reasonable cause to suspect that the person you were dealing with was sanctioned, then you didn't commit uh, a criminal offence. Well, we haven't quite gone back to those days because this is going to be a civil penalty when it comes in. And we're expecting this to be given effect to during the course of this summer, but we're still awaiting the detail of the secondary legislation to confirm from when those changes will uh, will take effect. So that's one sort of beefing up, I suppose, of the uh, the enforcement regime. The other interesting part of all of this is that the new law will allow OFFSEE to publish details of sanctions breaches, even where it uses its discretion not to impose a financial penalty. So, for example, a, for a minor breach where a cer- sanctioned person has been able to circumvent a company's... Uh, systems and controls in some way, then obviously you can still publish details of that breach and name and I suppose to some degree shame uh, the organisation in question. I suppose that could therefore give rise to its own sort of rep- reputational consequences. So there's some changes in terms of how obviously is going to get bigger and better or bigger and sterner over the uh,
0: forthcoming months. Peter, certainly a lot going on in the UK. Let me wrap up our discussion here by asking each of the three of you to do what we try to do at the end of each of these sessions is to give a little prediction of the future. Why don't we start first with Britt? What do you see as the next transatlantic major sanctions actions? Things are changing so fast. If we want our clients and listeners to begin to anticipate just a little bit of regulatory action, I want to go to all three of you. Britt, you first. Predict the future.
3: <laughs> well, this uh, isn't a huge development, but one of the things that trade nerds like us that are following closely and people who deal with all the time are are the upcoming general licenses that are set to expire. So there are a number of general authorizations OPEC has has issued um, that are only have weeks left on them. And at recently, the OPEC director, Andrea Gaki spoke um, at a conference saying that OPEC was evaluating extending these general licenses, but In my experience those extensions really get down to the wire and can can come out the day that a general license is actually expiring and so um, we're watching this closely but I, i do think it's likely that that we will see 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 some extensions for another 30 60 or 90 days on on the key general licenses
2: david your turn thanks martin i'm gonna say oil obviously there's been intense conversations uh, with the United States and the EU and amongst the EU uh, about further restrictions on oil. The United States has prohibited the importation of oil and other energy products from Russia into the United States, but has not threatened sanctions against or imposed sanctions In a way that would make it difficult for the europeans to to import energy products from russia and so clearly want the eu to take the lead on that decision it's been difficult to get consensus among the eu on what those restrictions will be Um, and so those conversations in the eu continue Uh, but i would say not only keep your eyes on the eu about what type of decision it will reach collectively or individual member states will reach about restrictions on importing Russian oil, but also whether the United States takes steps to make it more difficult to do so, including allowing General License 8 to expire in June, which allows for the energy-related payments through sanctioned entities, um, or even going so far as to threaten secondary sanctions on persons that purchase uh, Russian oil or other energy products, even though I think the latter is is some distance away. But certainly the conversation on oil is going to be front and center for the next few weeks.
0: Peter, you, long anticipated uh, guest and our featured guest for this podcast, your turn to predict the future, Peter.
1: Well, I suspect, uh, like David, I would probably say oil, and we'll have to keep that one under close review, as he says, the uh, struggling with that issue uh, at the moment. But also, we've already uh, announced, or the government's already announced, uh, certain areas where they're going to be uh, increasing the scope of UK sanctions. Firstly, on those providing accountancy, management consultancy and PR services to Russia. Uh, I'm not sure how significant that will be. We speak to a lot of people about their operations in Russia, and they're moving in advance of the regime, as, as Britt mentioned earlier, in terms of closing things down, whether they are sanctioned or not. So it may well be that a lot of those professional services firms have already decided not to engage in in business in that market in the same way that lots of the law firms have have closed in in Russia. The second area is that we've announced that we'll expand our trade sanctions to target uh, other key exports to Russia, such as chemicals, plastics, rubber and machinery, uh, and also reverse imposing import tariffs on products from Russia, including platinum and palladium. So, uh, look, that's just a direction of travel. It's, it's going to increase over time. And I'm sure the list of designations is going to, to expand. I think this is now sort of the new normal in the sense that now that we are, you know, in that sense, unshackled from the EU, you will see much more UK-driven sanctions uh,
0: going, going forwards. Peter Burrell from London, David Mortlock and Britt Mossman from Washington, thank you for a fascinating conversation. Uh, This is Martin Weinstein for the Wilkie Compliance Concourse podcast series. Thanks for listening, and we'll be speaking to you soon again. Goodbye from Washington.